Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We go beyond the FM dial. If you want to listen to it live, you can go to RadioNorthland.org. Or if you uh, missed it live uh, at noon on Sundays here in the Central Time Zone, you can go to the website, check out the Wrestling Memories Then and Now page, and you can check out all six years. And now our seventh year, we are like well into uh, season seven here uh, of, of archives. Lots of good interviews from the past, legends who are not with us anymore. Good stuff. It's all there at RadioNorthland.org. And if you want to listen live, there's another option beyond just the old website. You can take us everywhere with the app uh, from TuneIn. We're, we're part of the TuneIn family, which is a wonderful family to be in. Yes, this is Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett, and my friend is back he had a couple of weeks off to do some scouting and do some research because this man is a very thorough man when it comes to the study of professional wrestling. He's uh, down there in Texas where the, the temps are bearable this time of year. And now as, as we finish up at the time of this recording, we're, we're into a, the 11th month of the calendar year. Mike, I can't believe wrestling memories then and now. We, we seem to be building momentum, my friend. And, and welcome to the program as well. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back, man. Uh, missed the last few weeks. Got a lot of great guests lined up, though. I think our listeners are going to enjoy who we've got coming up as well as who we have tonight. You know, and of course, you know our YouTube channel. That's another way you can find the Wrestle Memories. I'm I'm slowly updating it. I'm going to be adding the classic unedited Kenny Bolin interview uh, here in the next few days. So if anybody missed that one, then go back and take a listen to the unedited version. So, but other than that, man, yeah, it's cool and calm here in Texas. Nice little 60 degrees. So, you know, not dying. Sun's down, so it's all good. I'm ready for uh, another episode of Wrestling Memories. Oh, yes, and uh, welcome. It's always good to have you, my friend. Uh, since we got, since we kind of started doing this on a regular basis, man, we've definitely uh, have uh, gone leaps and bounds uh, with, with the content. Uh, so uh, you you were you were away for a little bit before we get to our guest. Uh, were you checking out any indies when you were uh, on assignment? I know uh, you uh, definitely keep uh, a vested interest in the, uh, the the Dallas Fort Worth and Texas wrestling scenes, just Texas as a whole. Have you did you get to anything lately? Um, actually, yeah, just last weekend, I was at uh, Dallas Championship Wrestling at the Grapevine Elk Lodge. Um, had a chance to watch another night of just great action. Anybody in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, if you got a chance to go check out DCW, I highly recommend it. And, man, a couple weeks ago, you know, we had Miranda Gordy on the show. Mm -hmm. I got the chance to meet Connie Gordy. I got the chance to meet Terry Gordy's widow. Mama Gordy. And she's agreed. Mama Gordy. And she's agreed to be a guest on our show in the upcoming weeks, so... We're going to get a little more taste of Terry Gordy and a few more stories. She told me a couple at the show that uh, I'm not going to repeat right now because we are on Sundays at noon on the, uh, you know, right after church, so it may not be appropriate. Oh, good Lord, we don't want to rile up the locals. Uh, we want to just give them good, good stories. But you know what? I'm going to let you, my friend, introduce our wonderful guest and talk about this wonderful book that is out that's really uh, gotten a lot of good buzz here upon its release. And it, it came into your hot little hands here not too long ago. And you had you came right to me and, and you sent me a message. You're like, Glenn, we got to get we got to get these, these these people on. We got to get them on. This is this is a good, great book. You got to read this. And I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't had a chance my i've been so busy to read it but I've, i'm definitely uh, going to be listening i'm a curious potential buyer here in this uh, scenario but you my friend have purchased this book you love it to the moon and back i'm going to let you give the intro to our guest today my friend all right man well as you said i do i didn't able to get a copy of this book it was given to me as a gift um it is a wonderful book it is an interesting look at the world of professional wrestling it's not just print it's not just words on paper with a few pictures and all that 
This is actually a graphic novel, a comic book, if you will. It is the comic book story of professional wrestling. A very, I will say, in-depth and entertaining look at the world of professional wrestling, going all the way back to, it goes all the way back to, you know, the colonial days when they were fighting. We're going to talk a little bit about that. It goes all the way up to modern days. And our guest is the creator of the comic book story of professional wrestling, none other than Mr. Aubrey Citizen. Aubrey, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, that's quite the intro. Uh, I am thrilled to be here, and I just want—I want to get this out right front because he couldn't make it tonight, sadly. Uh, I am—I am not the creator of this book. I am the co-creator of this book. Uh, the artist My on it uh, is. No, no, no. It's fine. Uh, I just—I I, want to make sure we give him credit because, you know, truthfully, uh, if you know anything about comics, you know that it's at least—I don't know—sixty percent art. You know, like, like that's, that's what makes it good. That's what makes, otherwise it's just me babbling at you. So um, Chris Moreno is the artist on this book and it, I can't imagine it being drawn by uh, anybody else because he absolutely nailed it. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of wrestlers in this thing and he was able to caricature and draw each one so that they're instantly recognizable, but without ever feeling, you know, like traced or like stiff or wooden. Uh, it's, I don't know. I, it's the work of his career, and it's uh, maybe the best-looking book that I've ever been a part of. So um, I just want to make sure that Chris gets uh, the proper amount of credit, which is a lot, honestly. <laughs> well, we were scheduled to have Chris on as a, a guest tonight, but unfortunately, due to illness, he had to uh, back down. Said he had no problem with you flying solo, as he put it, with uh, this interview. And I will say I am very happy to have you on the show. Like Glenn said, I found the book – I'll be honest. I found the book totally by accident. I was looking at professional wrestling on Amazon. This book popped up, released on October 2nd. I was looking at, okay, what's the comic book story of professional wrestling? I took a look at it. What I saw got my attention. Ordered my copy. As soon as I received it, I have it on Kindle. I started looking through it. I'm a historian by trade. That's, that's my uh, wheelhouse. And I was amazed just by the in-depth history of professional wrestling in this book. Just absolutely amazed. And like you said, amazing artwork, too. So many, just hundreds of names that were, you know, created for this book or, or stenciled for the book. Just absolutely amazing work. I'm so proud of it to read, be, uh, that I found this. And I'm very proud to have you on as a guest. But what I'd like to ask, sir, is where did the concept of the comic book story of professional wrestling come from? You know, how did it get started? What was the evolution of it to where... We are now. The comic story of professional wrestling, it's actually part of a line from our publisher, 10 Speed Press. Uh, prior to the comic story of professional wrestling, they'd done the comic book story of beer and video games. Baseball, I think, came out before we did. And they've got a, a few other uh, coming down the pike as well. Uh, so this was actually, you know, it's supposed to be the latest installment in this really great series. I've read all the books, uh, not the... Uh, not the baseball one, but I've read the other ones. Uh, the baseball one's sitting on my stack right now. Uh, but the ones I have read are amazing, and they're, they're definitely worth picking up. And, you know, uh, my editor, the editor of the series at 10 Speed, his name is Patrick Barb. And Patrick was actually a big fan of my old wrestling podcast. It was called Straight Shoot. I did it for about four years. So not as, not as long as you guys have been doing wrestling memories, but still pretty, a pretty good run, I think. Uh, and Patrick was a fan. Uh, we would talk... Uh, WE stuff, a lot of New Japan, indie wrestling, all kinds of stuff. Um, and Patrick listened to my show, and he knew that I loved wrestling. And he also knew from listening to the show that I was in the middle of writing uh, what ended up being about a two-year run on G.I. Joe. Um, I have a comic book background. And so when it came time for him to find someone to write 
this wrestling comic book, he had the bright idea of reaching out to the guy who was not only a comic book writer, but had a wrestling podcast with a bunch of wrestlers and, and, and smart folks uh, coming on to talk about it. So uh, Patrick reached out to me uh, all, shoot, uh, more than two years ago now. So this thing has been gestating for a really long time. Uh, Patrick reached out to me, uh, asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, of course, not only would I be interested, but I would be furious if anybody else did this thing, <laughs> if, if it wasn't me. And from there, Patrick uh, asked me if I knew anybody to draw the thing. And um, as I opened up telling you guys, you know, Chris Moreno was the perfect guy for this. And we lucked out um, that the scheduling worked in such a way that he could join us on this project because it was a long slog, man. It's 170 pages, which, you know, um, doesn't sound like a lot if, you know, if you're really, if you're only really familiar with like prose, but on each of those pages, there's typically about five panels and there are a bunch of wrestlers in each one and uh, a lot of period stuff, a ton of different reference that Chris had to follow. This was, this was a year and a half worth of work for him. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm really, I'm really thrilled that you dug the book, man, because uh, a ton of time, a ton of time and effort went into this thing. So it, it's a, uh, it's a joy to hear that you dug it so much. Well, as a historian, you know, I love reading all the, you know, I read the old newsletters, the old magazines. I have the collection of probably, I'd say most of the wrestling autobiographies, not all, but most, I'd say I'm probably in the 85% range, you know, a historian, a history. That's, that's my background. It's what I do. But you said 170 pages, five panels per page, you know, you, you say it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you get to it, you start reading the first page. There's just so much information going back to, I think you go back to like the Romans, the Colosseum days on so much information just in the first page. Then you flip the page and you go into, you know, the concept of eye gouging. You, you talk about the concept of eye gouging. <laughs> There's many pages before you even get to what has eventually become what everybody knows now professional wrestling before you even get to, you know, the Lou Fez, the gold dust trio, the forties, fifties, there's so much before that, you know, what process did you take to sit down and just go through? Cause you can't put all the history in the book. It's not possible in a book of this size. Right. It is not possible to cover all of the history, but you did such an amazing job on what you picked and chose to put in, you know, what was the process and, you know, what did you go through to decide what goes in, what doesn't go in, how you wanted to present it? Uh, so, first of all, thank you. Um, it's <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm I'm humbled by uh, by these these compliments. Thank you, sir. Um, when it came time to put together the outline, you know, um, one of the things that has always bugged me about a lot of nonfiction material, and I'm not just talking about wrestling stuff, but any nonfiction material, whether it's comics or prose books or documentaries, anything like that, is when what I'm watching or reading feels less like a story and more like a series of anecdotes, right? Um, and the difference to me is an anecdote is something that happened, and it's displayed and it's represented and it's told to you and it can be interesting or funny or enlightening or any number of different things. Uh, but a story is more than just a series of anecdotes or a list of things that happened. A story uh, or a narrative needs to have a point of view. It needs to have themes that are explored and an idea and authorial presence, right? Um, and this is, this book is called The Comic Book Story of Professional Wrestling. And so I took that really seriously. Uh, when I sat down to outline this thing, and my outlines are, um, they're bonkers uh, because I, I go page by page. And so before I even started writing the first page, I knew what was going to be on 
each of the 170 pages just to make sure we had room for everything, right? And my intent and the way I approached it was to come at to come at this big thing, the big the history of professional wrestling, not just trying to tell everything because you're right, we would never be able to tell everything. I would need 10 volumes, right, in order to do it, but rather to come in with a point of view and an idea. And to do that, I, I developed a few different thesis statements is kind of what I call them when I talk to folks. Um, but, you know, you can, you can call them themes or, um, or big ideas, you know, whatever catchphrase you want to use for them. Uh, but that's what they were. Uh, they were big ideas that I wanted to structure this book around. And so when it came time to f- figure out what had to get cut, because a lot of stuff had to get cut, there's a lot of things I would love to include or go m- more in depth on. Um, those decisions were made based on whether the information that I was considering actually contributed to these themes and actually backed up the thesis statement and tied in to what I see as the larger arc of professional wrestling. Um, because I think that that's, that's how you do a successful nonfiction pro- project, right? Is you, you discover the arc and, and you build around that. And so, uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I've already heard from a lot of people, and I'm sure I'll hear from more after folks listen to me talking on your show. Uh, folks are upset that I didn't include blank, their favorite wrestler or their favorite promotion. And, you know, it's not because I forgot them or because I don't think they're important, uh, but more an issue of making sure that the 170 pages we do have are tight and packed with information and all contribute to a whole as opposed to just kind of being disparate uh, little short stories, if that makes sense. Well, it makes perfect sense. Now, you know, you mentioned you've, you've heard from critics, you know, why didn't you include this? Why didn't you include this person, this federation? Like I said, so much packed in there. What are some of the things you weren't able to include in the comic book story that, you know, you wish you had? And if you had a second volume, you would go in and, and add those. I think about this all the time uh, because there's a lot of them, you know. Uh, I, was really, <laughs> I felt really fortunate that I was able to kind of shoehorn Ox Baker in there. Um, because Ox Baker's a favorite wrestler of mine, but he didn't really fit into the narrative. But I was able to, um, in one of our little interstitial pages, I was able to use him versus Vern Gagne as an example of uh, kind of like wrestling morality, right? Um, another guy I would love to have included um, was Ernie Ladd. Um, I think that his, his story is an incredible one, and he is a groundbreaking professional wrestler in terms of not just being a, a huge African-American star at a time when there weren't a lot of them, but he was actually the first black booker in America as well. Um, but again, it didn't really fit into the narrative. I would love to have gone deeper on Joshi wrestling. Um, I find that stuff fascinating um, as well as I, you know, in the, um, in the, in the middle of the book, we have three chapters on international wrestling, right? Uh, one on Lucha Libre, which also, it's, so it's not just Mexican wrestling. It also covers Puerto Rico, uh, one on Japan and one on the UK. And those chapters are out of necessity, um, they're an overview. They're more of an overview than the other stuff is. Um, and that was by design. You know, I'm an American. Um, professional wrestling uh, has, you know, you could argue this point, but professional wrestling was born in America. It's been dominated by American promotions for the entirety of its history. So that was, that was by design. But still, there's a lot of stuff that I would have liked to have get into, specifically Noah. I would love to talk about Misawa and Noah, uh, Michinoku Pro, uh, some of these other really cool Japanese promotions. But uh, that, I love and are really great, but didn't really fit into the arc of that chapter. Now we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to go to, uh, you know, this is what you would include. I'm hoping, you know, maybe one day you might sit down and do a volume two. Uh, I realize that's a long, daunting process once again, but when it came down to it, you put 
the books together. You said you had an outline of what you wanted on each page. Chris Marina, who unfortunately we said couldn't be with us, you hand this to him. He's the guy that's got to draw this. You know, <laughs> what what was his kind of take on it? When what did he say to you when you came to him and said, "Here, this is what I have written," and he knows he needs to draw this because the drawings well, are just uh, as big part of the story, obviously, as as the written words. A bigger one, I'd say, honestly. You know, so like I. Uh, we're skipping a kind of intermediate step here. So I did the outline, which is, you know, page breakdown, what's going to go on every page. Uh, but then I, after I got that done, I went, I sat down and wrote the script. And what the script looks like for people who aren't familiar is it's, it's similar to a screenplay or a teleplay. Um, but instead of just kind of like freewheeling, you know, here's what happens. And this person comes in and here's some dialogue in a comic book script, you break it down by panel. So I would say page one, panel one, here's what's happening. And then here's what the, what the text is going to be as well. So I wrote all that at that stage too. So um, what Chris received was a pretty detailed roadmap for what he was going to be drawing. And Chris and I had worked together before. We had done a graphic novel called Worth back in 2012. Um, so he was familiar with my process and kind of writing style. Um, but probably what he wasn't ready for was the breadth of reference that I sent him. Um, and I, for every single, almost every single panel had multiple images, um, in, like that I would embed into the script so you'd have access to them. Uh, because, you know, comics is a visual medium and this is nonfiction. And a lot of this stuff, especially once we get up into, you know, the seventies and the eighties, there is video footage of these matches. And so if we're going to depict them, if we're going to depict these wrestlers, we need to depict them properly. And so um, it was nothing for me to, for a single panel, have you know, four or five different images. You know, it's, it's the wrestler from this photo um, fighting the wrestler from this photo, doing the move in the third photo, but the first guy is wearing the, uh, the, the gear in the fourth photo, and the second guy is wearing the gear in the fifth photo. And then here's a sixth photo showing the move from another angle, just for good measure, you know? Um, so Chris, uh, Chris, was, uh, Chris is great, and Chris is um, a really talented dude, but I think that both of us maybe kind of underestimated how much work something like this is going to be in terms of keeping it accurate and making sure we get the right photo reference and things like that. And fortunately we haven't heard from anybody yet that we screwed anything up, although I'm, I'm sure it'll come eventually um, <laughs> because it was something, the, the size and magnitude of this, it's just, um, you know, it's real, it's real easy for uh, maybe like a, uh, a pair of trunks to get colored wrong, you know? <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. And uh, you know, you do cover Texas a little bit. You do talk about Von Erickson Freebirds. And Glenn and I have talked about this on the show before. They are a hardcore, diehard set of fans. And if you, if you make a mistake on that, one of them is going to get a hold of you. They will let you know. I believe I'll it. tell you that right now. Now, was, I'm going to ask, was Chris a pro wrestling fan or at this time? And if not, Chris is he is now? A pro wrestling fan. Chris, Chris is a pro wrestling fan. Chris, Chris is not a pro wrestling fan like we are pro wrestling fans. <laughs> but, Chris, but Chris loves and grew up with professional wrestling. And, you know, I actually, I moved to... LA in 2012 and Chris was already out here and uh, we actually started hanging out and I would take him to Lucha Underground tapings and indie wrestling shows around town and stuff like that, which he loved. And this is before we even started working on this, before this book was even a thing. Um, so yeah, man, Chris, Chris loves and understands and appreciates professional wrestling. Although, you know, he probably, um, he probably wouldn't do as well as us in a trivia contest. <laughs> 
this is probably true. Now, what is your background, you know, in professional wrestling? You know, what what kind of got you attracted to it as a fan and then going on into doing a podcast and into doing the comic book story of professional wrestling? Yeah, man. So I, you know, like Chris and like a lot of people, I grew up with wrestling and it was just, you know, I, I was, uh, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which is, you know, that's very much the old mid Atlantic territory. And there's a lot of holdover wrestling fandom from that. And so, you know, um, but you know, Virgi- Richmond, Virginia is an interesting place, right? Because um, if we're talking territory wrestling, it is uh, officially that's mid Atlantic territory, right? That's Jim Crockett promotion yes. territory, but, um, but capital wrestling um, was, you know, stretched all the way down to DC. So there was, it was kind of a nice little overlap area where there was um, a lot of WE or WF at the time and WCW fandom. Uh, when I was growing up, I was in high school during the Monday night wars. Um, I was a small child during the eighties golden age. Um, so I, it was always, it was omnipresent, right? It was impossible to get away from. I always loved it. I didn't really fall down the rabbit hole and become a like hardcore wrestling fan until I was an adult. Uh, and I was, you know, I was living in New York City. I was working as an editor at Marvel Comics, and I was a huge comics fan, still am. Um, and I kind of realized that it was unhealthy for me to spend 40 hours a week, at least 40 hours a week, uh, working at Marvel, working on comics, putting out, putting comics out the door, then go to a bar with friends and talk about comics, and then go home and read comics. Like that's not <laughs> like I need a little bit uh, more diversity in my diet, my pop culture diet. And I stumbled. I was, you know. I recognized that I need a new hobby. I need something else to geek out over aside from my work. And I stumbled across wrestling one night uh, and it, it just, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I remembered, Oh yeah, I love this stuff. This stuff is amazing. And at first I really, what drew me to it was the similarities to comics, which, and there are a lot of surface similarities, right. In terms of being serialized and, you know, power, like male power fantasies and um, the soap opera elements, the morality plays, um, but the more I watched it, what I really fell in love with were the differences and what a unique, specific art form professional wrestling is. And I think it's different from any other storytelling medium. And uh, from there, I, you know, I was living in New York at the time, so it was real easy to get right back into it. Um, not just with the WWE shows that would come through. And I, I, you know, I went to ECW One Night Stand. And it was, you know, and that was a big part of getting me back into things. Uh, and also finding Ring of Honor. Um, and being able to go to Ring of Honor shows in Hammerstein and Manhattan Center, uh, that, le- that, that fandom led to a gig at WWE. Uh, I worked at, at WWE.com as like a writer and producer for web content for two years. Uh, I then worked freelance, writing about wrestling a lot of places, and eventually uh, got led out to Los Angeles, where I worked for both THQ and 2K uh, on the WWE video games. Um, which got me, um, which honestly, like working that job got me a lot more face time with professional wrestlers and people who work in professional wrestling than even the, the website gig did because we were kind of cloistered off in a separate building. I left that job in 2013 and then uh, started my podcast uh, because I was really eager. I wanted to talk about wrestling and I was having a hard time finding an outlet that would pay me to write about wrestling because I, I consider myself a writer first and foremost. Uh, and I figured, well, if I can't find anybody to pay me for it, I'll just do it myself and I'll own it and I'll put it on YouTube and I'll put it on podcast platforms. And that was the, that was the genesis of straight shoot, which is my, my wrestling podcast. I think all like podcasts, you know, unless you're like, you know, Austin or Jim Ross or Jericho, you know, the big names or whatever. 
I think a lot of the podcasts are kind of a labor of love. You do it because you love the business. You do it because you love, you know, the history. If you make a little money at it, that's great. But unfortunately, that's just kind of the way of the world with the, uh, you know, the podcast. Seven years here. I have not been with uh, Rosalind Memory for seven years. I'm coming up to the end of my first year uh, with Glenn okay. on this show. I did a, another podcast before that for two and a half years, though. But it's a labor of love. This is why you do it. And it's kind of like almost, you know, the comic book story of professional wrestling, I'm sure when you first started, you weren't thinking big dollars, money, money, money. You know, this is a labor of love. This is something you wanted to do. You wanted to put it together. I'm sure dollar signs weren't flashing in your eyes yet, although now that might be a little different story because I know you are rising up the ranks on Amazon as far as sales go. Uh, <laughs> a a second okay. printing, yeah, I believe. Man. A second printing, I believe we... you said, is now up. Yes, sir. We had a, we we went back to print a, a, a two weeks ago now, um, and it's yeah, it's it's selling great, man. We'll see how the royalties shake out, but um, I'm really pleased. You know what I'm most excited about, honestly, and this sounds cheesy, but it's true. What I'm most excited about is the reception, uh, not just from fans, right, and historians and people like people like yourself, uh, but actual professional wrestlers. Uh, that's kind of the thing that means the most to me. So, you know, we've had Seamus and Corey Graves and Cole Cabana and Jerry Lawler and Roger Strong, Shayna Baszler, uh, a ton of really talented, uh, Xavier Woods as well, really talented, amazing wrestlers have responded to this thing and they're really digging it. And that means the world to me because as I'm sure y'all know, writing about wrestling as an outsider, which I am, even having worked in the industry kind of like in tangential ways, I'm, I'm a wrestling outsider. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a wrestler. I'm not a promoter. I'm not a referee. I'm not a booker. Uh, I'm just a guy. And writing about wrestling as an outsider is exceedingly difficult because wrestling as an art form is based on the obfuscation of the truth, right? You know, blurring the lines between fact and fiction. So it's, it's difficult to get, you know, a clear read on things as an outsider. And so to have actual professional wrestlers responding to it in such a positive way, that's what I'm most excited about because it means we did something right. All right, well, I'm going to pass the microphone over to Glenn here. Let him ask a few questions. Glenn, the uh, floor is yours. All right, thank you so, so very much. And, of course, uh, thank you, uh, Aubrey, for being on the program with us. Uh, we're going of to mention- course, man. Have we, convinced, have we convinced you yet? That's my goal. That's my oh, goal on this here, you're, to convince you to buy a book. The sell is so good right now. I, like I said, I've just been enjoying kicking <laughs> back and listening to uh, to you uh, and Mike uh, going over the book and, and talking about uh, you know what, what drew you into pro, pro wrestling to put this uh, book together. And I want to uh, let the listeners know uh, the name of the book is... Uh, the comic book story of professional wrestling, a hardcore, high-flying, no-holds-barred history of the one true sport that I'm just about ready to uh, order here on my Kindle, uh, probably as soon as this interview it. is uh, con- con- concluded. But, uh, man, you know, there's uh, so many things. You know, in sports, you know, there's so many fans, the rabid diehards, no exception in the world of professional wrestling. And what some of the stuff, you know, uh, the fans do is fantasy, uh, you know, football, you know, where they put a fantasy baseball team together, whatever. You know, for pro wrestling, I guess you could consider the, the uh, sort of variation of the fantasy element as a, a dream booker. Now, I'm going to ask you kind of just fun kind of questions because the knowledge uh, that you possess, I mean, it, that's on display in this book from what it's been sounding like is uh, very well detailed and very well in respect of the industry but i want to ask you kind of some fun hypotheticals you know like do the dream you want to be, you put on your dream booker cap here okay right on fair uh, warning i am a i'm a notoriously horrible fantasy booker 
<laughs> well, as, as long as we know that going in, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm game. Let's do it. Okay, we're not going to go get uh, too uh, deep into scenarios. I think I'm going <laughs> to broad brush you here with some of this stuff. But as far as like, I, I really want to know what era, you know, because pro wrestling had, you know, so many uh, interesting cycles of success and, uh, you know, the golden age of the kayfabe era and, of course, uh, the attitude era later on in the 90s. Uh, out of all those eras and decades, uh, what era, if you were deciding that you could transfer through the pro wrestling time machine that takes you anywhere you want to go what era would you want to uh, to book be, uh, based on on the talent and, and the part of the country and and the time uh, where would you you would love to book and, and and just tell us that because I mean there were so many great vint- classic territories classic areas of the country and we and of course uh, a lot of the fans today uh, only get to hear about the territories as a passing thing in the history of pro wrestling but where would you if you were uh, like the dream booker where would you want to go? So my favorite era of wrestling is the late 70s and the early 80s uh, before all of the national expansions started occurring, right? And it wasn't just the U.S., as you guys know. It, every, everybody was trying to nationally at the time. Um, but prior to that, when there were still a lot of different viable territories and a lot of journeyman talent, you know, bouncing around these different places, uh, that's my favorite era to go back and watch things. And um, of the motions of that time, I, um, I've, got a, I've got a real soft spot in my heart for uh, Jim Crockett promotions. Um, I love all that stuff, especially because of how influential it was. And, and I think part of it, too, is a lot of that stuff has been retained in the cultural memory a little bit better because Ted Turner did buy it and, and evolved it into WCW. So that stuff is probably a little bit fresher in everybody's minds, including my own. Um, so that being said, uh, you know, like as much as I would love to do JCP, man, um, I think I'd have to go with mid South. I'd have to go with that late seventies, early eighties, Bill Watts territory, man. Um, I, the thing I dug about that, and it's the, the thing I dug about, the era as a whole is every promotion had their own feel and their own aesthetic and they're all going for a different thing. And there's a real, there's a big diversity in how these shows were presented. And I really have always dug and um, responded really well to the grittier, uh, more sport based tough guy approach of Bill Watts. Um, I, I love that stuff, man. And part of it probably is I like seeing, you know, the early versions of dudes who would go up to New York and get um, saddled with wacky uh, gimmicks that, you know, despite being super wacky and childish, were enormously successful, right? So it's not a knock on those. But um, I love that stuff, man. I love seeing early um, I love seeing early Magnum TA and Mr. Wrestling 2 and Ted DiBiase and One Man Gang and Butch Reed and um, all those guys. Like, that's, that's my favorite era. And it's so awesome that, uh, you know, with, with the WWE network, there, there's been a, a real uh, movement afoot to preserve these, uh, these archives. Some people, uh, the, the knock on, on, on the network is uh, they're not coming out fast enough. But, I mean, when you talk about all of this yeah. mass content, I mean, it's going to take a while, especially when you're going back. It's to a lot of work, man. It's a, even when I was working at WWE in 2008 to 2010, already they were hard at work on digitizing their archives. And it is a enormous, enormous undertaking um, because, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't in all that great a condition. You know, they would, whenever, um, WWE's move is whenever a wrestling company goes out of business, they swoop in and buy the tape archives, which, you know, it's predatory for sure. 
that they're just waiting for the opportunity to do that. Uh, but it's also really important. It's a really important thing for wrestling history that this stuff be preserved. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thrilled by with how much old um, Mid-South and WCCW and even like old like MSG cards and stuff. I love watching that on the network. Yeah. And, and I'm seeing like lately they added uh, the uh, the WWF uh, all-star wrestling show uh, from the late 70s, early 80s too. So you can go back uh, around 79, 80 for the whole Bruno uh, Larry uh, uh, drama that That's led to mean. the eventual turn. And of course, the big main event at the, the Super Show at Shea Stadium. I mean, it's fun. And you can get into the early 80s when Ray Stevens and Jimmy Snooka's eventual face turn. I mean, gosh, you get to see so much. And again, those Madison Square Garden shows are, are phenomenal as well. So uh, just a great wealth of uh, really, really great content and more still on the way. That that That's nice. I mean, I like to stay in the current, but I mean, I I have to admit, I mean, the YouTube era started uh, spoiling me and actually letting me go in to watch stuff that I didn't necessarily get growing up here in northwestern Minnesota as far as the cable movement or the satellite dish movement. I did have basic cable and it came around in our neighborhood around 1985. So that's where I was playing from. But it, it's kind of like this return, this nostalgia gives us that little bit of a warm feeling and it lets us kind of investigate what we missed exactly yeah no it's a it is truly the best time to be a wrestling fan i think you know as much as as much as we i'm gonna loop you guys in with this uh, as much as we like to romanticize the territory era and think of how great it is uh it was uh but it cannot like the availability of that stuff like now we look back and we think oh wow look at all these territories we could have watched but no you would have you would have had your one territory most likely or you know, later on once people started broadcasting through cable you would maybe get one or two others it was nothing like now when you have the entirety of wrestling history as well as countless international promotions uh, to pick and choose from. It's the best time to be a wrestling fan. I honestly believe, I honestly believe that. Oh, I second that uh, 100%, 1 million percent, because I grew up, you know, uh, northwestern Minnesota, where we I lived, uh, was about 20 miles from the Canadian border, so we had a lot of, uh, before the cable came in, we had a lot of stuff from, from Winnipeg, uh, the TV channels we would get, so, so uh, yeah, I, and then we'd have, of course, uh, AWA uh, on one of our local uh, stations, but uh, through Winnipeg, I, I was actually able to discover, uh, you know, guys, you know, in the Calgary Stampede, and of course, uh, what Whatever uh, lineup of uh, what was uh, the West Four Wrestling Alliance uh, with Tony Candelo, of course, uh, uh, known for a guy who uh, broke in uh, Roddy Piper, and he also ended up breaking in guys like Jericho and Lance Storm. Not necessarily training them, but breaking them into his uh, his territory. So I mean, I mean, it was kind of a unique time to be able to see uh, you know these guys uh, when they were cutting their teeth. Uh, but yeah, that was the the uniqueness of of having uh, you know we had four channels, but we were able to find the wrestling. There you go. <laughs> For me, though, as far as like the fantasy booking, uh, you mentioned uh, Crockett and uh, I mean... The thing for me, I, 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 I'm not going to go too far down the line from you. In fact, uh, these uh, two kind of met up. Uh, I, I think I would have loved to have been uh, working in Georgia Championship Wrestling right around the time when things got uh, got tumultuous there with uh, Ole and uh, Jim Barnett, who I think, and I, I've talked to uh, Tim Hornbaker about this, I think somebody needs to finally uh, put the uh, definitive uh, book out of, about Jim Barnett because, you know, it seems like everybody's had their book out, whether they've written 
them themselves or help with a, a co-writer, ghostwriter, or had somebody look back on their career, you know. But I've never seen or I've never even seen anything close to uh, putting a book together about Jim Barnett. Because when you think about it, Barnett, he had his toes uh, dipped in the pro wrestling story uh, way back in the early days of, of getting it on television and, and the international yeah, stuff he did. A- Barnett is a crucially important figure. Barnett's another guy who we, uh, spoiler alert, we don't really do much with Jim Barnett in the book. Um, but he is a, he is a terribly important figure, not just, not just in the United States, but internationally. He ran a promotion in Australia for a time, didn't he? Am yeah. I just remembering that? Yes, 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 he did it in, in the early 1970s uh, before uh, heading back uh, to the States. It was very highly successful. They was, you know, you get the cream of the international guys coming out there to work. It was one of those destinations that kind of what Japan came to be uh, with some good money, exactly. nice nice location, and, and just good exposure. And he was also, um, Barnett's also uh, important in wrestling history, I believe, too, uh, for being one of the, or one of, if not the earliest um, out gay professionals in, in professional wrestling um, that, you know, that was unheard of at the time. Uh, I think Barnett is a, I would, I would read that book and I would love it if Tim wrote that book because uh, I, I've not read his latest, but I adore his NWA book. Oh, um, I've read it three or four times because it's so dense with information. Um, but no, Tim, Tim's the guy to write it. Yeah, I think that the, somebody's got to pull the trigger on this because it, right now it's probably a good time because of all of this uh, availability to, to, the, to the past uh, through the digital era and, and all of these places we can check out uh, good wrestling. I'm going to let Mike go back in uh, because I know he's chomping at the bit to ask a few more questions uh, here on Wrestling Memories Then, and that was fun playing a little uh, hypothetical there with you. Of course. Right, so I'm going to continue on with the, uh, the hypothetical situation because... Um, I moved here to Texas, you know, two years ago before that lived in California. So Portland wrestling, San Francisco, Roy Shires wrestling. That was, I was kind of in the middle of those two areas, but thanks to the wonders of ESPN cable and everything else, I was exposed to world-class championship wrestling in the mid eighties, 86, 87 with legends of world-class. I'm sure we've all watched those shows. Um, my thing would be 83, 85, the Von Erichs, the Freebirds. Back when Texas was the hot, you know, Texas was a hot territory at that point in time. And the what if I'd like to kind of throw at, because, you know, you've taken your time to go through the history. You do mention the uh, Texas territory and the Von Erich, the Freebirds, is in the 80s, I think around 86, 87, there was talk of Fritz going national. They had talked about that. And I would kind of think, you know, get your take on it. Maybe you got a little information on it during your uh, research is, what would have happened if Fritz had gone national? What would do you think the change would have been kind of in the wrestling scene? Because at that point in time, Fritz was one of the, uh, was one of the big names at that time. So it's an interesting thing, right? Um, this idea of going national. And I think it is, um, it's a very pro wrestling thing in that it's largely been, um, it's, it's been presented, 80s wrestling history has been presented to wrestling fans in a very specific way. And WWE um, and WF, I'll use WWE just because it's easier, um, even if it's, it's not historically appropriate for the conversation. Uh, WWE has played a big role in that, um, really latching on to this idea that Vince McMahon did something unprecedented and horrible and backstabbing by taking WWF na- national. Um, which is an interesting take um, because, first of all, it's ahistorical, right? Um, Vince's dad had left 
um, that his dad and Tootsmont had left the NWA decades before, more or less just because they wanted to have their own champion, right? They wanted to keep Buddy Rogers their champion. They had left before. Uh, Vern Gagne and the AWA had left the N- uh, the AWA had left the NWA decades before that even because Vern wanted to be the champion. Um, in addition, you know, you guys mentioned Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, they were broadcasting Georgia Championship Wrestling uh, via satellite all over the country, you know, which was breaking these old alliances. And similarly, you know, Fritz von Erich and WCCW and um, Bill Watts and uh, a bunch of guys really did make a, in addition to um, Vern and the AWA, and of course, um, Vince and WWF and Jim Crockett and JCP, uh, a lot of guys made a real concerted effort to create a national promotion. This had been a dream for promoters going back to the Gold Dust Trio. That was always the goal, to be one big promotion that runs the entire United States. Uh, but because of realities of travel and a lack of television, right? Television is what made it possible. Um, it, they just couldn't do it. So this idea of a promote, you know, WWF deciding they're going to go national and then just flipping a switch and becoming a national promotion. That's not really how it happened. You know, it was a, it was kind of a slow process um, for them to get to the point where they could actually, you know, it depends on how you define national, right? Um, if, if you're really just talking about having your wrestling available everywhere, well, there were a lot of national promotions, right? Um, WCCW, uh, Mid-South, uh, JCP, AWA, these guys all had, televised wrestling outside of their territory for years, you know, um, but we don't see them as going national in the same way that we think about WWF eventually going national. So, um, you know, my take on this, um, and it's something that we, I talk about a lot in the book is that, you know, Vince McMahon didn't, Vince McMahon and WWF didn't do anything different than other wrestling promotions were trying to do or had been doing for decades. They just did it better. You know? So I, I think that, you know, WCCW and Fritz von Erich, uh, they tried to go national. And um, for a number of different reasons, uh, they couldn't swing it. Um, and I think the same thing is true of all of the other promotions uh, who tried to go national and ended up um, kind of falling to WWE's um, deep, deep pockets, which I think is the, the, the biggest um, thing that contributed to WWS success. One of the funny things about world class in this uh, um, category is that people don't realize it? You know, the boys were all they went over. They went over to Israel and they wrestled matches in Israel. They were popular over there because Israel was able to pick up the satellite feed because that would they would record the shows and it would go to a satellite. They were able to pick up the satellite feed of the show from Dallas and it was broadcast in Israel. And so you know, if you could look at it that way, they were kind of they might have been considered worldwide at that point in time because of that you know, era right there. They were able to get picked up in Israel and they actually went over there and worked some successful shows, which is interesting because, you know, world-class is kind of, and I hate to say this because, you know, I'm a little biased, but world-class was kind of a, like a world of its own almost at one point, you know, just right there in Texas, but it was just this huge hotbed. I don't think, you know, other than maybe, you know, I mean, Portland was big, Shires was big on it, but Texas kind of had its own, feel to it world class had its own feel to it just because they were doing things that tv wasn't doing yet at the time i think that's that's a really astute observation you know wccw you know wwf gets a lot of credit rightfully for how they revolutionized how wrestling was filmed 
um, around the Sunday or the Saturday night's main event era, right? Once they started getting the expertise of NBC to actually film these things, they realized, oh, wow, we can make this stuff look really good. Um, but prior to that, WCCW was the best looking wrestling show on the air. Um, number one with a bullet. Nobody even came close um, because of the attention they paid to things that nowadays are obvious, right? Just lighting and um, cinematography, right? Um, absolutely. WCCW was absolutely groundbreaking in that regard, of course. They were actually one of the first ones to do a multi-camera, multi-camera exactly. shoot. That was one of their static. It says it's a static, terrible one-camera shot looking at the entire ring. Yeah, man, and that changed everything. That was an entirely different way to pre- to present wrestling, and that was that was WCCW, of course. Now I'm going to go back to the book for a little bit. I know you've been doing a lot of the uh, the comic conventions and things like that, and I'm sure people are coming up to you and telling you, you know, what they liked about the book, what they haven't liked about the book. Um, one thing I noticed, and this is when I'm my first read, and it kind of surprised me. You actually mention you, you talk about Hurd, and we all have know many stories of Jim Hurd. You actually bring on and talk about the Ding Dongs. The Ding Dongs are actually right. drawn and illustrated <laughs> in this book. They're in the book. Oh, I want to know is what's They're the up. mindset that made you think of putting in the Ding Dongs? Because unless you are a hardcore fan, you're not. You may not remember, or you may just want to forget who the Ding Dongs were. I think including the ding dong. The reason we include the ding dongs is because we were talking about kind of the failures of Jim Hurd era WCW, and you know, at the end of the day, this is a comic book, and so it needs to be visual. And um, as terrible and awful and laughable as the ding dongs were, uh, they were a visual. They're they're a really specific goofy visual um, that. Better than I mean, the only thing that did it better was RoboCop and Sting, which is actually in the previous panel. So, yes, you know, um, it 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 was a it's a visual representation of what WCW was doing wrong at the time, um, and that's 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 why the Ding Dongs made the cut, but Ernie but Ernie Ladd didn't. <laughs> I would say that maybe that what WCW was doing wrong, or maybe what Jim Hurd was, was doing wrong, because I think everybody has a Jim Hurd story of some. He wanted to make Ric Flair the gladiator, cut his hair short, have him right. come out with a, with a, and the hunchbacks. That was the other one. The hunchbacks was an idea he had. They could never be pinned because, you know, you couldn't put their shoulders to the back because they were flipping hunchbacks. Uh, you yep. know, Jim Hurd might be a comic book of his own. You could do the comic book story of Jim Hurd, and it'd probably be the funniest thing he ever read. <laughs> but, um, at the conventions, are there things that fans have come up to you and said, oh, my God, I can't believe you mentioned this, or... I was there when this happened. Have you had any of those instances? Um, you know what? I'm trying to think. Um, you know, I've only actually done one convention since the book came out, and it was this past weekend. You know, it's only been out for a month. Uh, and I, I did a convention this past weekend in Richmond, Virginia, which is my hometown. And, you know, so a lot of people haven't read the book yet when I'm, when I'm talking to them. I'm actually just trying to sell them on it. Uh, so I haven't heard any of those types of stories yet. Uh, but I did talk with a guy uh, who's, from, who's from Pennsylvania, uh, and he remember he his dad had a story of trying to sell a steer to Bruno Sammartino and Tony Gurria, and I don't I'm not really sure whether they were going I should have asked I don't understand whether they were going like Habsies on the steer or if just one of them was buying it but regardless they were both there to check out this livestock right. And the steer got like down in a ditch and couldn't get out. And so they said, you know, oh, man, we're going to have to call a tractor 
and pull this thing out so that you guys can buy the steer. Uh, and Bruno said, no problem, and went down there and grabbed the thing by the horns and pulled it out of the ditch. He pulled a, he pulled a big old cow out of the ditch. Uh, so I've been hearing stories like that. <laughs> I've been hearing a lot of stories from people who grew up watching wrestling uh, with their parents or their grandparents, and they're flipping through, and they see all these things, and then the memories come flooding back to them, which has been a really cool thing, man, um, to play a role in uh, kind of pressing those nostalgia buttons for people. Now, during your year and a half process, two years of working on this book, um, did you speak to any like of the other historians, you know, you know, Bill Apter or any of those guys, or did you talk to any of the wrestlers that you were including in this book to maybe kind of get a little bit more information? And if so, who were they and how were they receptive to uh, what you were doing? Because sometimes, you know, an sure. outsider, although you're not really an outsider, being that you work with WWE for a bit, but how receptive were they if you uh, did contact them? So I didn't reach out to a lot of wrestlers as first sources. Um, and the reason I didn't do that is because, um, as you guys have mentioned, there's such a wealth of uh, printed material already out there, autobiographies and books about wrestling and stuff like that. So I, I had that available. Also, you know, before the book, before a book's announced, you kind of want to be a little careful about uh, talking it up too much places. Um, and another thing I was kind of keenly aware of, and this is, you know, whenever using wrestler autobiographies as a source it's something i had to keep in mind is that these are wrestlers we're talking about man uh by by nature of their profession nothing you hear or see of them is shown to you without them wanting you to see it right um, a lot of if you've read a lot of wrestler autobiographies as i know that you guys have you recognize this, that these things are curated looks at professional wrestling, and they're usually done through the lens of making the person writing them look good or cool or putting forth, you know, whatever narrative that they are trying to promote. Um, so while that's really easy to, it's, it's e not really easy. It is easier to kind of suss that information out when you're reading a book. Um, it becomes a little bit harder when you're talking to people um, and doing these kind of first source interviews. So I didn't do, I didn't do any um, like reach out to um, you know older wrestlers and, and talk to them about their memories and stuff like that. And also because you know memories are fallible, you know, um, and I, I like the added. Uh, I like being able to point to my sources, you know, aside from just like oh well this guy told me this right because it's, it's a nonfiction book. Um, I did the people I did lean on though um, are a couple of them and I, I acknowledge them in the back of the book. Uh, one of them is Excalibur, um, who is a co-founder the announcer, the commentator, and the liaison to the board of directors at Pro Wrestling Guerrilla here in Los Angeles. Uh, and he is a brilliant uh, wrestling historian in mind. Um, and I reached out to Excalibur, and he read an early version of the script and gave me notes on it. Um, things that I had kind of, yeah, not so much stuff, stuff that I had gotten wrong, but things that I was kind of, um, I could have worded a little bit better and was maybe kind of missing the point on it in a few places. And that was enormously helpful to me um, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, making sure that this is something that wrestlers saw, like I wanted to be accurate, but I also wanted to be respectful. Um, and Excalibur was a huge help in that regard. Uh, another guy who was a big, big help in writing this thing was Roderick Strong, uh, who's currently in, who's tearing it up in NXT. Uh, Roddy used to do my show all the time. Uh, back before he was in NXT, when he was uh, doing the Indies and doing Ring of Honor. And Roddy did more than anybody to help me really feel like I understood how wrestling works, right? Um, not so much, you know, memorizing dates and history and things like that, but just 
be able to wrap my brain around the underlying mechanics of wrestling and how it's presented and the goal of it and um, really being able to break down a wrestling match and a wrestling event because that's what my show was all about and that's what we did and Roddy would do that with me quite frequently and it was an enormous help in kind of building this kind of <laughs> uh, wrestling view that I have and in terms of what wrestling is, how it operates um, and that really informed the structure and tone of the book moving forward. Now, the book's been out for about a month now. It came out October 2nd. We're recording this on November 1st. Uh, you just went into your second printing. You know, it's a month. This book has come out. I know as a writer myself, you know, when I release something, I've mainly done newsletter articles, things like that. But they're, they're still like my children. Those are my babies. I'm sending those out there. You know, your, your quote, this baby is a month old, you know, how are you looking at it now? Are you, you know, is there something, are there things you would like to change? Are you, you know, are you happy with where it is now? And where do you, you know, hope this is going to lead to? Uh, I'm thrilled with it, man. I'm really, really proud of it. We, we went, we worked through a book publisher. We worked through Tim Speed, um, who's been amazing. And you know, they're part of Penguin Random House. And so um, we really had time to get this thing right, you know, um, and going over the printer proof, you know, going over, going over PDFs, going over printer proofs, you know, sending it through, uh, proofreaders and fact checkers and uh, all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm really, really proud of it. I'm thrilled with it. You know, the only thing, the only regret that I have is that we didn't have more pages, right? <laughs> cause I would have, cause I would have loved to have gotten more in depth on things and include some of the things I mentioned earlier. Um, that there just wasn't space for, um, but no, I don't really have any, I don't have any, I don't have any regrets. I don't have any, uh, there's no, no, uh, little things bugging me at the back of my mind about it. Uh, moving forward, you know, I, uh, I've been doing a lot of podcasts and interviews and um, talking, talking, talking up this thing. And uh, I'm excited to, I'm excited to see how it holds up, you know, because another really big difficulty in writing this thing was figuring out how current we should keep it, you know, um, because you want it to be current, you want to cover everything because you don't want to go out of date quickly, but you also don't want to date it too much by, um, talking about things that are very much of this moment, but maybe wouldn't uh, be a big deal in a year or two. Right. And we don't have, especially if you don't have the distance to really look at that. So, you know, I did the outline for this thing back in, you know, late 2016 and I kind of had to play Nostradamus a little bit and think about, you know, where are things going to be in a couple of years when this comes out and how is this going to be viewed 10 years from now? Cause I hope the book will still be in print then. Um, so yeah, I don't have any regrets in that regard, but it does bum me out um, that, you know, big things have happened in wrestling since then uh, all in. Uh, it's huge. I think that's a huge important thing for wrestling and for the wrestling industry. And we don't cover it here because it, it wasn't even announced yet when I was writing the thing. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's stuff like that, that I, uh, I would love to have covered and I don't know, maybe one day they'll let me do an expanded version or an addendum or a, uh, some kind of, follow-up that I can pick all this stuff up with. Have you been in contact with uh, Johnny Mantell in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame? Because I think your book is something that obviously definitely falls into, you know, what they do. I have not. I, I should be, though. Let me get you in contact with him. I, I, I will, I will do that for you. I will message him. I will send him the info about this book and all that because I've known Johnny for a few years now, and he is a, obviously, you know, he respects professional wrestling history. He, he loves to talk professional wrestling history. Let me do what I can. I think this book needs to be on display in the, the hall of fame. Cause I think the amount oh, of people thanks, going man. through there, they're going to thumb through it. 
and they're going to learn a little bit more of that history while they're surrounded by the history. But at this time, I'm going to really, hand it back over. Yes, sorry. Oh, no, it's, it's just it's something I really – you know, you touched on a little bit. It's something I really love about this book is because wrestling is so visual and such a colorful medium, uh, and we had the opportunity to display that here, um, I've already heard from folks who are telling me that, you know, stuff sticks with them a little bit more than if they were reading it just in prose. And, you know, prose has a big benefit over comics and that you're able to fit – uh, like the density of the amount of information you're able to fit, but there's some things that can't be conveyed through prose, right? Like to understand Ric Flair, you really need to see Ric Flair, right? <laughs> which is, which I think is why um, our book is resonating with people because um, it really helps to drill this information in uh, because it's got visuals alongside of it. And that's due to the amazing work of Chris Moreno and our colorist team, which includes uh, Leno Grady, Alan Pasolacqua, Brad Simpson, Jay Moreno, and uh, our letterer, Russ Wooten. Uh, all these guys are amazing and uh, a murderer's row of talent to have worked with. Well, I know I have a seven-year-old who's he's into comics now and he enjoys and he loves wrestling, so he's chomping at the bit to be able to sit down with Good. you know my laptop to be able to kind of flip through it because he's seen some of the pictures and he wants to read the rest of the story. But I'm going to pass this over to Glenn now if he's got any other questions before we wrap up uh, I, I, I this week's edition of Rational Memories. I think uh, we've definitely got it all summed up. And, uh, you know, the big thing, the big uh, conclusion at the end, I'm going to be uh, buying this book. So uh, a successful pitch. <laughs> we did it. Oh, I yeah. Sold him. Get the physical. The Kindle, the Kindle copies are great. It's got everything in there. But here's what you're missing out. Um, holding this thing in your hand, seeing that spot gloss on the cover. Get the physical uh, copy. Treat yourself to it. Well, you know, I think I'm going to do that. For uh, Aubrey Setterson and, uh, yes, the grizzled vet Mike uh, McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.